This episode is sponsored by State Farm. You a small business owner looking for insurance that fits your needs and budget? Well, look no further than State Farm. State Farm agents are not just insurance providers. They're also small business owners who live and work right here in your community. They understand the unique challenges of running and protecting a small business. When it comes to small business insurance, State Farm knows what it takes. Create a plan that fits your needs and your budget. State Farm agents are ready to help you choose personalized policies that truly understand your business. Ensure your small business with a fellow small business owner. Talk to a State Farm agent today and get started on personalized small business insurance that fits your needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, it's Monday. You know what that means, OG. Time for our Navy Federal shout out, which I get super excited to do. So everybody, I'm, I'm raising my hotel coffee here. It right looks delicious. Glass. Here's to is the it also lukewarm? It is. Here's to the men and women serving our country in our armed forces on behalf of the men and women making podcasts here and the men and women at Navy Federal Credit Union. Big shout out to our troops. Let's go stack some Benjamins, peeps. I guess you should have called. I did call earlier when using the phone. Earlier when was that? Or later when then I uh, le- left a message. A message? What number did you call? Two, four, niner, five, six, seven, eight. I can't hear you. You're trailing off. And did I catch a niner in there? Were you calling from a walkie-talkie? No, it was cordless. Live from Joe's mom's basement, it's the Stacking Benjamin Show. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and how much do you think your finances affect your social circles? I think a lot. I mean, if it weren't for money, I wouldn't be part of this exclusive stackers only club here in the basement. Today, to help you make sense of the social aspect of money, we welcome the author of Just Keep Buying, Nick Majuli. In headlines, Massachusetts and Robin Hood butt heads. Oh, that should be interesting. And in our TikTok Minute, we'll dive into the difference between Gen X and teenagers. We'll also save time to throw out the Haven Lifeline to Chris with a question about separate accounts for couples. And of course, you can count on my mind-bending trivia. And now, two guys who want to help you make friends and money, Joe and O-J-J-J-J-J. Hey there, stackers. Happy Monday to you. I am Joe Salci. Hi, Average Joe Money on Twitter. You did it. You made it to the start of another week, successfully navigated the weekend, and now we've got your back, peeps, because we've got a heck of a week of personal finance fun waiting in the wings and doug you're you're just i'm waiting just you got something i'm laughing because you managed to somehow make a monday sound exciting 
<laughs> you did it! Yay! Isn't it awesome? A, you made it to Monday. Not a single person the... listening right now agrees with your sentiment. <laughs> it's part of the podcaster job description. Like when you sign up for this, it's uh, the very first question they asked me when I walked into the HR office was, can you make Mondays fun? Because that's prerequisite number one. And we're okay. going to do our best. You know why we're going to do our best? Because we got Nick Majuli here. Not only is he the COO of a big firm called Ritzholtz uh, Wealth Management, but he also is a huge, huge tour de force. They call him on Twitter with his Of Dollars and Data Twitter feed, which always has interesting stuff. He's got a new book out called Just Keep Buying which is his philosophy when it comes to stock. So last year, last year, last week, they, they get confused. They get so confused. Last week, we had Brian Feraldi here talking about Stocks 101. Today, we're going to talk about just getting your house in order. Like what's important when it comes to buying? We will dive into that. But TikTok Minute, but first we got a headline. But you know what, guys? Even before that, this episode is sponsored by State Farm. You a small business owner looking for insurance that fits your needs and budget? Well, look no further than State Farm. State Farm agents are not just insurance providers. They're also small business owners who live and work right here in your community. They understand the unique challenges of running and protecting a small business. When it comes to small business insurance, State Farm knows what it takes. Create a plan that fits your needs and your budget. State Farm agents are ready to help you choose personalized policies that truly understand your business. Ensure your small business with a fellow small business owner. Talk to a State Farm agent today and get started on personalized small business insurance that fits your needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Well, you know what I think about Navy Federal? I think about the veterans that have done so much for our country. And I also think about some of our active service members. Want to say a special shout out to Uh, My nephews, Colin and Nathan, who are both in the Navy. Colin is stationed outside Seattle, Washington on a submarine. And my nephew, Nathan, is in South Africa as an air traffic controller. And in Military Appreciation Month, Navy Federal Credit Union wants you also to celebrate members, many of whom go above and beyond. Navy Federal offers member-only exclusive rates, discounts, and tools to empower their members and help them reach their goals. It's all branches of the military, veterans, DOD employees, and their family are eligible for Navy Federal membership. They offer 24-7 help from their U.S.-based member service. Visit NavyFederal.org slash celebrate to see all of their Military Appreciation Month offers and other Navy Federal offers. Navy Federal is insured by NCUA, Equal Housing Lender. It's so funny. We got so involved with uh, the happiness in the open. We didn't even say hi to the guy who's usually across the card table from me. <laughs> I told, told, how are you, OG? How are you? Oh, you know, thanks for noticing. <laughs> I, uh, I'll just keep working away here while uh, my uh, significant and profound impact to the world of personal finance continues to go unnoticed by you <laughs> in particular. So it's so difficult when we're doing this, uh, while I'm on the road, normally sitting across the card table, it's pretty easy today. I'm like, I got, I don't know, stuff all over the place, getting ready for another big event tonight. So going to have some fun though. Another one I wasn't invited to. How about Nick Majuli, huh? That is uh, quite the get 
as they say in the uh, podcast world. Yes. That's a good okay. get. It is a good get. But the better get is that we said hello to OG. We checked that box. Now we can head into our headline. Hello, darlings. And now it's time for your favorite part of the show, our stacking Benjamin's headlines. Our headline today comes to us from Investment News, and it's written by Mark Schaff Jr. Uh, Massachusetts judge strikes down the state's fiduciary rule. I'm actually recording a little bit early because I'm on the road. I'm actually in Boston. We're getting ready to do an event tonight. And uh, a Massachusetts judge last week struck down a regulation imposing fiduciary duty on brokers in the state. The ruling came in a case brought against the state's top securities regulator, William Galvin, by the online brokerage firm, Robinhood Financial, an arm of Robinhood Financial Markets, Inc. Robinhood filed its suit in April of last year in response to a suit filed by Galvin in December 2020. Galvin had argued that Robinhood's practices and its online trading app violated a state investment advice rule that went into force in September 2020. The regulation imposed a fiduciary duty on brokers, a standard that's not currently applied to them, and required brokers to make financial recommendations without regard to their own financial interest. And I think it actually is funny that Robin Hood's like, bam, we won. You can't teach us to be responsible. We don't have to be responsible for your success. You don't have Take to be that. responsible for anything, apparently. Acting as a fiduciary means that you act in someone's best interest. So it's not even success. It's just we refuse to act in your best interest. And you can't make us. We might. <laughs> we, will, we might we do it. We're we just not going to file t- a lawsuit. Yeah. We're, we're just... Uh, We're just that slippery of a group. So uh, in my open, I said Massachusetts and Robin Hood butt heads, but isn't this a great decision for Robin Hood? They're just like off the hook. They can do whatever they want, as they always have. Yeah, agreed. Well, they totally did butt heads, but it looks like Robin Hood's on top here. Michael Kitzes, who, for people that don't know, Michael uh, is, is quite a commentator in the financial advice space. Michael said this. He said, we don't need to apply a fiduciary standard to broker-dealers providing advice to lift standards. He said, we simply need to clarify the line when a broker providing advice triggers registered investment advisor status, and then the advice will be regulated as fiduciary under current law. What does that mean, OG, when he says that, that we don't need it? Well, the big sticking point in all of this fiduciary, non-fiduciary talk, which, by the way, most people don't understand. Barely the people who are involved in it understand. And, and, and some of them, to Michael's point, are taking advantage of the language differences. You don't know when your broker is changing from being a broker who is responsible for facilitating transactions to being a fiduciary, being an investment advisor, being a representative uh, for you. They don't ring a bell. They don't say only on the bottom half of the hour. It's just they can shift if you're a broker between providing brokerage advice and between providing investment advice. And you as a consumer don't know which hat that person is wearing. The problem is when your broker switches hats between being uh, a broker and providing investment advice, you don't actually get to know when that switch is happening. And so what Michael's talking about here is if we just had to disclose or brokers had to disclose when they're providing investment advice, then that advice would fall under 
the investment advice in investment advisors act which actually says you have to be a fiduciary but because brokers can switch hats you know kind of willy-nilly in the same conversation in the same meeting without you knowing then their advice air quotes doesn't have to fall under that investment advisors advice and it's just so brokers kids is og is having the same feeling about this that you've had about lots of legislation we don't need a new rule is what he's saying we just need to clarify the existing rule yeah which is why all of the brokerage companies merrill and morgan and you know e-trade well e-trade doesn't have retail stuff but but you get the idea those those place why they push back so much because then they'd have to either follow the they'd have to basically say we are not acting in your best interest nor are we obligated to and they don't want to have that affirmative designation if you will or affirmative you know conversation so didn't stop Robinhood from celebrating its win in court. This is their this is their statement. Dan Gallagher, Robinhood's chief legal and corporate affairs officer, said this. The Massachusetts Securities Division has consistently mischaracterized and disparaged Robinhood's platform and customers without any legal basis. How are they disparaging their customers? As too dumb to know that they're that they're using a platform where the platform doesn't care about you? Is that how they're disparaging their customers? I don't know. As the court made clear, the secretary's decision to act unilaterally and reject any effort at coordinating with federal and state authorities supports the conclusion that by adopting the fiduciary duty rule, the fiduciary duty rule, the secretary acted beyond his delegated authority. The second half, maybe maybe I agree with that, but the first half, I think it's funny, disparage their platform and their customers. Let's talk about this fiduciary standard just briefly. The fiduciary standard for people that are wondering means that they're legally required to act in your best financial interest and not on their own. And that's super important. But the big thing here, OG, is breaches of fiduciary duty come with strict legal penalties. Like there is a legal hammer that's applied if you're a fiduciary, which might be why they're, you know, they're pushing against this. So yeah, of course. Brokerage accounts. Yeah. But plus all the negative press that comes from the fact that they're not like everybody in the universe would be like, so you're not obligated to work in my best interest. Got it. Lots to dive into on this topic. And you know what? As always, we're going to have lots of deep dives and uh, rabbit holes. You can go down if you want more on this world of fiduciaries and how it all works in our newsletter, the 201, which we're so proud of, stackybedjamins.com slash 201 to sign up. And the day after every show, you don't even have to have listened to the episode. So even if you miss one, get the details, the deep dives on all of these topics in your inbox every Tuesday and Thursday. Time for our TikTok Minute OG. This is the part of the show where we trash light on. Trash. <laughs> you think this one's trash? trash? I actually think this one you're going to like because I don't know if you've ever been to a Starbucks with a teenager. But uh, this is one dad talking about uh, his experience going to, well, just listen. They're in line and it's their turn to order. E with a teenager. Can I help you? Okay. Go ahead. Okay, could I get a venti mango dragon refresher um, with no water, double blended, and strawberry puree? Okay, and you? Uh, yeah, I'll get a uh, medium coffee with caffeine. <laughs> You're supposed That's to get a drink with no water. Double blended with strawberry. Double blended, no water, dragon fruit, something, three extra pumps of the whatever thingy dingy. Yeah. 
but I feel much more like the dad. Medium coffee with caffeine, please. That's totally my speed. Completely my speed. And the good news is that medium coffee is only nineteen dollars and twenty six cents. Yeah. So. Yeah. Don't you mean grande? The grande coffee? That's medium. Oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. I don't even know what that means. We've played that before, haven't we? Yeah, I love the Paul Rudd bit yeah. on that. You know it, right, Joe? <laughs> yes. Yes. Okay, do we need to play it now for people that don't know? I got it. Good morning. Can I take your order? Can I get a tall chai? A uh, large black coffee. A what? Large black coffee. Do you mean a venti? No, I mean a large. He means a venti. Yeah, the biggest one you got. Venti is large. No, venti is 20. Fanny. Yeah. Large is large. In fact, tall is large, and grande is Spanish for large. Venti's the only one that doesn't mean large. It's also the only one that's Italian. Congratulations, you're stupid in three languages. <laughs> I swear, I swear that's OG ordering. I, that's not Paul I, Rudd. I every time I see or hear that clip, I think that's OG. Like that is, it's almost his voice. I do refuse. I, <laughs> I have been compared to him, but I do refuse to call Starbucks drinks by their made-up names. I got small, yeah. medium, and large. Wait a minute. Back up. I've been compared to him. Yeah. The guy that everybody says is the most likable person in Hollywood, you've been compared <laughs> yes, to. 100%. <laughs> there aren't even dreams that good, OG. I don't, I don't know <laughs> what to tell you. There's no way. In half those movies that he's in, I may be his stunt double, just so you know. <laughs> it's that. It's that close. Okay, something stinks in here, so we got to get moving. <laughs> Nick Nick Majuli coming up next. He's the chief operating officer and data scientist at Ritzholtz Wealth Management, where he oversees operations across the firm, provides insights on business intelligence. He's also, of course, the author of the very popular of dollarsanddata.com, a blog looking at the intersection of data and personal finances. Work has been featured all over the place, but the big header Nick is going to have from now on is that he's on his way down to the basement to visit with us. So Nick Majuli coming up next by way of, I think, Mr. Doug, you might have some trivia for us first. Hey there, stackers. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug. I was just upstairs talking to Nick Majuli about his work in personal finance and data. Though, I don't know what data has to do with it. You just go with your gut or whatever TikTok tells you to do, right? In March of 2020, when the U.S. stock market was about 33% off its high in the largest decline since the Great Recession, Nick asked Twitter how long they thought it would take for the market to recover. So, that's my trivia today. Out of the 5,000 responses, which was the most popular prediction? Was it less than one year, one to two years, two to three years, or more than three years? I'll be back after I go read my diary, I mean, Twitter, to see what I thought back then. Well, when you hear the name Navy Federal Credit Union, you probably think, oh, gee, it's just for members of the U.S. Navy, don't you? Don't you? Yes, I do. Only for people in submarines, presently. In fact, Navy Federal Credit Union, OG, serves all branches of the armed forces, so there. They even serve the families of service members and veterans of all branches. How about that? Well, you sure showed me. I certainly did. They're experts in military finances. They empathize with members' lives and go above and beyond to make sure they don't miss out on financial opportunities. You know, I mentioned the time that I used Navy Federal and their true car. 
app, but they have so much more than that when it comes to buying a car. Navy Federal knows it's a big investment. It's why they offer rates as low as 1.79% on new vehicles, along with flexibility with monthly payments and terms. And now when you refinance your auto loans from another lender, members could save and get $200, get decisions in seconds and start saving with Navy Federal Credit Union. Available to members who are active duty veterans and their families to earn and save more as a member. Learn more at NavyFederal.org. It's NavyFederal.org. Navy Federal is federally insured by NCUA. Credit and collateral subject to approval. Rates subject to change and based on credit worthiness. So your rate may differ. Refinance loans must be at least $5,000 to be eligible for the $200. Terms and conditions apply. And now a word from our sponsors at Betterment. Do you want your money to dream big? Do you want your money to be a total self-starter? Are you annoyed that your money doesn't work hard enough? Well, don't worry. Betterment is here to help. Betterment's the automated investing and savings app that makes your money hustle. Their automated technology is built to help maximize returns, meaning when you invest with Betterment, your money can auto-adjust as you get closer to your goal, rebalance if your portfolio gets too far out of line, and your dividends are automatically reinvested. That can increase the potential for compound returns. In other words, your money's breaking a sweat while you can be breaking bread. You'll never picture your money in the same way again. Betterment, the automated investing and savings app that makes your money hustle. Visit Betterment.com to get started. Investing involves risk. Performance is not guaranteed. stackers i'm market psychic and payoff palm reader joe's mom's neighbor doug though almost everyone underestimated what coronavirus would mean for the world most overestimated what it would mean for the market 31 percent of the negative nancys who answered nick's question thought it would take more than three years for the market to recover however less than five months after the market hit a low on march 23rd 2020 it was at an all-time high so, what was the most popular estimate for when the market would return? One to two years. And now, to help us get it right with life and money, Nick Majuli. And here he comes down the stairs to the basement. Have a seat, my friend. It's my new friend, Nick Majulis here. How are you? Doing good. How are you doing? Well, I'm great now that we get to talk about what's really important in investing. And what's amazing, based on everything I know about you, I pick up Nick's new book and I think, okay, we're going to dive into the depths. We're going to get all nerdy. And this is a highly consumable, very, very meat and potatoes book you've created, my friend. Very straightforward work. I love it. I appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah. I try to be data driven, but you got to make, you know, my grandma can understands most of it, like 90% of it. So that's, that's the key. <laughs> because if grandma ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. I mean, yeah. we know that with mom exactly. upstairs. <laughs> I was, I was surprised in the introduction though, that you began with a family story and your grandfather who suffered from addiction, but not only did he suffer from addiction, Nick, he brought you along for the ride, which made me go, Oh man. Yeah. So he was addicted to gambling um, and gambling. Mostly when, when I got brought along for the ride, that was all on horse racing. So as a little kid, I loved, I was watching the ponies go around, you know, it was like a little thing. And I, you know, I'd go with my father and my grandfather, we go to like the LA County fair or Pomona County fair up in the um, Fairplex. And we just, we'd see the 
horses run around and it was like a fun thing for me. I didn't realize that my grandfather was addicted to this and he'd lost a marriage because of it. All these, I only found this stuff out later as I got older, you know, but it's one of those things. It's, you know, it's a you know rough part of your family history, but it kind of taught me a lot about money in, in different ways. Yeah. And I want to ask you about that because he ended up in life completely broke, you write, mm-hmm. and living with your great grandmother. So he didn't have a house. He didn't have any money. He didn't have anything. Mm-hmm. And you say that he could have still been addicted to gambling, to racing, and he still could have been wealthy. He could have funded this horrible habit that he had. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, so he didn't really have any assets, but he had a pension and he had social security. So he was getting, you know, almost two grand a month at one point after the time he retired. And he had no real cost because he went and lived with my great grandmother, right? It was actually him and his brother. So it's like my great uncle, it's like three people living in this house. And yeah, they were just living there. She paid for all the food and everything because she was still getting social security. So really they were just doing that. And I'm saying like, he could have just like cut his bet size in half. And if you just put the other like thousand bucks a month, and I know that's, that's like a significant amount of money for some people, like a thousand bucks to save sure. that could be a lot of money, yeah. but it's not, I mean, he did it. If he had, I said, he did it for the, whatever the 26, 29 years he was retired, he would have built over a million dollars just from doing that. And he, and he had, and he would have invested that during, you know, 2000, 2009, which is one of the worst periods. It's like the bulk of his savings would have happened during one of the worst periods in U S stock market history. And it's just wild that that's true. Now, of course, I'm not expecting people to cut their, you know, there's a lot of assumptions yeah. there, but you get sure. the point. Like, it's, yes, he still could have been a, a, a big gambler. He just needed to cut his bet size in half. And he could have like literally still lived the same life and built wealth, you know? So it's kind of interesting. Yeah. It's this, it's this big aha and definitely not to to make light of your grandfather's addiction, but you mm. transition early in the book to your own life. You had an addiction, it seems, an addiction to spreadsheets and, and mm. much more, much more nerdy, much, much less, uh, much less uh, invasive. But however, you talk about early on how you were addicted to the wrong stuff. You were addicted to, it sounds like, uh, analyzing investments. Yeah, I was trying to optimize my invent. When I was 22, 23, I'm like, I'm going to get this right. I'm going to pay low fees. I'm going to get the right asset allocation. And I'm doing all this. And I come to this realization, like, so like uh, the example I had, like when I first started doing all this, I had like a thousand bucks in my 401k or something like yeah. after, you know, a couple months of saving or whatever, I had maybe a thousand dollars in there. And I'm like overanalyzing everything. And then, at you know, even if I got a, this thing I say, is even though I got a 10% return on that, that's like an, in one year, it's a $100 investment return. That's my return for the year. At the same time, I was going out like every Friday, Saturday with friends, you know, out in San Francisco, you know, drinks, Uber, dinner. I'd spend $100 easily, right? And so I'm like, I didn't even realize at the time, I didn't realize only years later, I was like, wait, I was going out and just blowing that money. Like, and I don't regret going out with friends. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying I shouldn't have spent so much time analyzing the investments when what would have probably done me better if I just spent more time, you know, yeah, you spent, career or thinking you spent about a whole skills or something else. You spent a whole year's return, Nick, in one night, right? <laughs> yes, easily. And that's, there's a lot of people that are, you know, early twenties, you're going to do that. You're going to spend your entire year's return in a night without realizing it. Now that doesn't mean you should just never go out, never socialize. Of course not. I'm not recommending that at all, but I'm just saying like, don't overanalyze your investments when you're young. Think about like, okay, what can I do in my career skills spending? That's going to matter more initially. Well, that's what I was um, going to ask because you write, you're looking at things that we all hear at an early age. We hear to keep fees low. We hear to diversify. We hear to hold for the long term. And yet you say those are the wrong things. So if those are the wrong things when you're 22 years old, what are the right things when I'm 22 to be examined? It's not, 
It's not that those are the wrong things. It's that those things matter far less than we think when you're 22, because you can be in a low fee thing, but if you don't have a lot of money invested, it doesn't really matter. And that's the unfortunate truth. So the subtitle of that chapter is savings for the poor investings for the rich. Now, what do I mean by that? I don't mean like people in abject poverty. I wasn't in poverty when I was 22, but I mean poor relative to my future self. Like you have to think about poor, like as a relative term, relative to your future self, right? So the thing that I think young people should be focusing on is their skills, how to grow their income, their career. All of that's far more important because every hour you spend on that is probably going to have a bigger return for you than every hour you spend analyzing your fees when you have, you know, a couple thousand dollars invested, you know? So that's what I mean. I, I don't want to downplay, like, trust me, I know the fees matter, holding for all that stuff's very important, but it's going to be more important when you have a hundred thousand dollars invested or a million or whatever amount that you have. So but I love this. that's the thing to think about. Yeah. And I love this idea of focusing on shoveling more in. Like get get mm-hmm. used to shoveling money in and build that, build that first. But but you build out this continuum. Like where is it more important? Where's that line? How do we evaluate when it becomes more important to focus on our asset allocation and our investments than it is to focus mm-hmm. on that shovel and getting money in? Yeah, and so what what I call the save invest continuum. It's very simple. Every person's on it. You have to be on it by definition, and you just need to know two numbers from your financial life. Just two. The first one is like reasonably how much could you expect to save in the next year? So let's say you're like, oh, I can save 500 bucks a month. Okay, 500 times 12, there's $6,000. That's the first number, 6,000. And the second question is like, okay, how much can my investments earn me in the next year? So let's say you have, I don't know, $20,000 in like a 60, 40 or something. And let's say you think it's gonna get a 5% return. So 5% on on 20,000, that's a thousand bucks. So your first number, how much I could save, 6,000. Your second number, how much could I earn from my investments, a thousand. So based on that, because the 6,000 is bigger than the 1,000, you need to spend more time focusing on your savings and getting that money invested. Because over time, if you do this right, as you get more and more money invested, that 1,000 on the investment side is going to grow and grow and grow. And at some point, you're going to realize that they should be very similar. And then at some point, your investments are just going to trump anything you could do in your savings. So imagine, let's use the, the other extreme, someone with $10 million. If they have 10 million bucks, a 10%, like they say they lost 10% in the market, market had a 10% crash, they lose a million dollars. Like there's yeah. no way they could save a million dollars oh. after tax unless they have a really, really, really big income, right? So it's one of those things where most people, you're gonna see this transition. I'm almost at the point now where if there's a very bad year in the market, there's like no amount of saving I can do to offset that. Like assuming I were to like sell or something, but yeah. you, on paper, you see what I mean? Yeah, so. yeah, absolutely. It's interesting that in the FIRE movement, you know, financial independence, retire early movement, people are very focused on their savings rate, right? Which I think reading about your continuum, I'm I'm thinking as I'm reading your book along, I'm like, okay, this is really good that we focus on our savings rate. And you use this fish analogy to describe how much we should, should save. And it's actually funny. I'm reading along and you're talking about fish and I'm like, where the hell is this going? So <laughs> Got to keep you guessing a little bit, Joe. Yeah. So So explain what fish have to do with saving and how we should really think about saving versus thinking about our saving rate. Yeah. So there's these char up and I I believe they're in the the streams of things up in Alaska, if I remember correctly. And basically what happens is their digestive tracts change based on how much food is available. So like they will basically like they can eat more when they're when they know there's more food available. And when there's less food available, they just they shrink their digestive tract. So they're like burning less calories and stuff like that. Um, And this idea is important. Like, well, why why does that matter for us in personal finance? Because the idea is like you should save what you can instead of saying like, oh, I need to always have a 20 percent savings rate. I need to have this or that. 
that's fine in a steady state, but things happen. You can lose your job. You could, you know, have a big raise or something. Should you still be saving 20% when, you know, you, your income doubles? No, you probably should be saving more. I mean, how much more we can get into that. I, I discuss that in a later chapter when discussing mm-hmm. raises, but the idea is to kind of just be a little bit more dynamic because like our financial lives are dynamic. It's very rare that someone just earns, you know, you know, let's say they start earning $30,000 a year and then just get three, 4% raises the rest of their life. That's not how it works. There's usually big jumps and then it's flatter than just, it's all over the place. And so I think a lot of the personal finance literature out there is just like on this straight, steady path. And that's fine for like running simulations, but the real world's a little bit more messy. So I'm just trying to get people to get rid of guilt around saving and just say like, save what you can. And if you realize you're, if you feel like you're not progressing, like you want to, then raise your income and then it's gonna be much easier to save more. Well, and I want to, that's the key. Yeah. Nick, and I want to dive into this a little bit because I think this is super important. This point that you make, which is you talk about number one, the trend is is that our ability to predict our income from year to year, and you show the the data, of course, because that's what you do, but you show the data around, it's becoming harder to predict what we're going to make next year. Like more and more of us have a variable income versus the year before. Yes, of course. So not just as from individuals, but like, we're now coupling, like you have to realize, but you know, back in the fifties, it was like, usually like, you know, the husband went to work and the wife stayed at home. And so there was one income. And so it was a little bit more predictable. Now with two people, the volatility is kind of like doubled in a sense. And because, you know, now you don't need, I think, you know, Elizabeth Warren says that you don't need 52 paychecks to now, you know, pay for something you need 104. Right. So it's like, because now, you know, men and women are working most, most are at least, it does change volatility. And so it's going to change how you think about income and what, and what your income is going to be over time. So that's what makes it even tougher to save. Okay. I'm always going to save at, you know, X percent when, you know, there's gonna be times when you, of plenty when you can save more, there's gonna be times when you need to cut back. And I think that's okay to adjust your savings rate accordingly. And one of the unintended consequences of the fire movement, and you talked about guilt earlier, a lot of people feel like they should be doing better. They're like, man, I should be saving a bigger percentage of my income. And you do a very nice job of looking at the data of low income earners ability to save and higher income earners ability to save. And of course the press always points to the exception to the rule. I remember when I was a financial planner that I had clients that made $250,000 a year and couldn't save a dime, like could not save Mm -hmm. anything. But you point out those people, the exceptions, the data points to if you're a low income earner, it's very hard. It's very hard to save a huge percentage of your income. Yeah. So like the Bureau of Labor Statistics data sh- shows that pretty easily. And I kind of, I, I don't remember every single number yeah, off the top of my head, but in the book, funny. you can see, yeah. you can see like, okay, you're in the bottom 20%. Like here's how much they're spending on average in these categories. Tell me how much we could cut. And you can see like just the necessities eat their paycheck. Right. And the issue is it's very obvious. Like once you see like, okay, as income brackets go up, like spending goes up, but it goes up much more slowly than income goes up. So that that gap is bigger, which allows for saving. And you can see like, and every data set I've looked at, like higher income is higher savings rate. And of course you're right. You said there's the person with 250,000, those are exceptions. Or they're saying, what about the celebrities that go bankrupt? You know, and there, you can probably name, you know, five, 10 celebrities that went bankrupt, but like five to 10 is your data points. I have every other celebrity. Like you, you have N equals five. I have N equals, you know, everything else minus five, right? Like that's the idea. Like there's so many rich celebrities, only a handful of broke ones. That's the, that kind of illustrates the point that, you know, these are exceptions to the rules. So like, I think another thing too, people talk about mindset a lot. I'm not saying mindset. It's not important. Of course it matters, but like, I don't know anything about the rocks mindset or Oprah's mindset, but what I do know they have high income. Like yeah. I know that with certainty, I don't know how good they are as money managers. So that's the thing I think like, undeniably in the data, you see that break apart with higher income. So that's why I try to focus on it because undeniably it's, it's true. Well, yeah. So there's this fight in the personal finance space, make more money, 
versus control your spending. It sounds like you're, you're leaning toward make more money is more important than controlling your expenses. Yeah, completely. And that's, that's why I call, I think cutting expenses to get rich is one of the biggest lies in personal finance. Personally, I think because the data doesn't support it. Like, yes, there's, and there's limits to that. You can only cut your spending so much, you know, if you're someone who's making a million a year and you're spending close to a million, you know, let's say after tax and you're spending a million a year, yes, cutting your spending is going to make you wealthy. But those are exceptions. Most people like they are, they're already like stressed out already with with their current budget. I think to tell people you got to, you can't, you have your lattes, you're peeing away a million dollars, all that type of stuff. It's just, it's just inflammatory. I don't think it's accurate. I think we have to have people focus on the income and think, and I'm not saying raising your income is easy, but over multi-year periods, I think there's ways people can do it. You find ways. And I talk about how to do that. There's different methods. Well, and I want to dive into those if you don't mind, because Mm -hmm. it isn't often that we talk about those on this show. So you got five Mm -hmm. different ways. I'd like you to just comment on each of these. I'll give you the prompt. Mm -hmm. You tell me a little bit about it. Number one, sell your time slash expertise. Yeah, I think this is like, so remember, this is like a side hustle. There's main hustle and side hustle. So some of these under main hustle, this is under side hustle. But yeah, selling your time and expertise. I think this is something that everyone can do early on. And so you're like, I don't have any expertise. Well, then there's things out there where you can like people say, well, drive for Uber or Instacart. There's a lot of different things you can do just early on to like make some extra money. And the money's not great. I'm not going to lie. But until you build expertise in an area, then you can start charging more Then you're like, oh, I'm a tutor for someone. OK, you can do that. Or I have a photography skill that I can teach someone, you know, photography or something like that. Those are just quick examples of selling your time. It's well, not great initially, but it can build over time, which I think leads to number two, right? Uh, sell a skill or a service. So now you build that skill and now you can charge more. Yeah. And you can also delink it from your time a little bit. So instead of saying, okay, it's going to take me one hour to do this, you say, I'm just going to give you this final product. And if you get very efficient at it, you can start giving that product with less and less time. And even if you, you could train someone how to do it and then you hire them or you have them do it for you, like you can then like start earning that spread, right? There's a lot of ways where, you know, that's now starting to get into building a business, which is a little bit more advanced, but you can see how you can go from just selling time to selling a, you know, yeah. a service or a, or a skill. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And a scale somewhat then. Number three is to teach. Yeah. Yeah. Teaching I think is great. And especially with the internet now, like people are doing this on YouTube and earning ads. People have like courses on teachable and all sorts of stuff. And dis- disclosure, I don't have any sort of relationship with them. So I'm not like <laughs> pumping them. Or but there's just these, these online places where you can yeah. teach stuff, whether that's like a cohort based class or you're just, you're putting out a course. The hard part with that, you have to, it's mostly marketing. You have to get your, you have to get people out to know who you are. That, that takes a very long time. So starting with teaching is probably tough, but if you know something like there's someone out there who just like He's like the best at doing like bonsai trees, like cleaning and like maintaining them. And he just has a live stream. He makes a ton of money just doing that because he's like one of the best in the world at like maintaining bonsai trees. If you like know something very, very well, you may be able to find an audience. So don't discount like your skills. There's a friend of mine who goes on and on about one of his favorite YouTube channels. It's all about welding. Mm-hmm. And this guy is like just a phenomenal welder and makes tons of money teaching people how to be better welders online. So to your point, yeah. there's it's exactly it. It's there. It's possible. Like, don't think your niche is too small. Welding is actually, I would say bigger. Like I'm talking, sure. we, we yeah, probably get bonsai, probably specific right. types yeah, exactly. of welding. Yeah. There's right. bonsai welding is the next big thing. So. <laughs> bonsai welding. Uh, number yeah. four, and you alluded to this one as well is to sell a product. And I would imagine this one has a little bit more upfront costs, a little harder to get into, but also then probably a higher upside. 
Yeah, I mean, the, the thing about selling a product, whether it's a physical product or you're doing tr- some sort of drop shipping like merchandise or you're creating something like a piece of digital content, like things like Gumroad right now, if you have digital content like information products, you're like, oh, here's like a how to learn how to do this or how to, you know, you can sell those pretty easily now. And it's it, they made it very simple to kind of make money off that. So I think the digital economy has kind of changed side hustles for a lot of people. So Well, and also the ability to get cool people working on your team. I think the digital economy's helped too. I mean, the the wealth of people just on places like Fiverr that can do a lot mm-hmm. of this legwork for very little money can bring that product to bear much faster than I thought, you know, 10 years ago. Yeah, exactly. Like you can start, yeah, that's what I'm saying. You can hire entire teams just from yeah. you know your home. You don't have to go meet someone or have to know a guy or a girl or whatever doing this. You know, I think it's much, it's much more, uh, it's changed a lot of things. And then number five is just climb the corporate ladder. And this goes back to your, your main hustle idea. Yeah, I think so. A lot of people, I know there's a, there's this cultural like VC superiority, entrepreneur superiority complex, whatever you want to call it. And I'm very against that. I think there's like, if you actually look at how most Americans have built wealth, it's usually through like professional services and things like that. It's really kind of climbing corporate ladders and like, you know, getting advanced credentials and working, you know, at like a lawyer, doctor, a lot of those things. So things where it's like you are, you do have some sort of like nine to five in the traditional sense. You're not necessarily a business owner. Now, of course, some of those law firm people become partners. Some of those doctors have their own practices. So that's true as well. But there's a lot of people who have built wealth just through a nine to five. And so to, to discount that and say, you can't do that, you need to have your own business and stuff. I think it sends the complete wrong message. Cause not for everyone. Like I'm not, a, I wouldn't consider myself a great entrepreneur. I'm very good at like writing stuff and putting out content. I wouldn't consider myself a great like business runner. Like I run businesses and stuff like that. That's not really my thing. I'm really just good at like, you know, talking about my stuff. And then I'm very good at working with other people to help their, help them realize their vision. So I know yourself, know your skills and what you're good at. So don't discount, you know, nine to fives. Well, and I love the fact that you know yourself and once again, being all about data and the data mm-hmm. shows most people make their money using that nine to five. So to say yes. you can't do it's ridiculous is Totally yeah. ridiculous. Yeah. I want to give people a little leg up from the second half of the book, which is about investing, which clearly we've already made the point is less important to young people than getting money saved. But before we do that, you have a great discussion about making spending guilt-free. And so many mm-hmm. people feel guilty about spending. How do you make your spending guilt-free? I think there's two things you can do. The first thing is to figure out like what actually brings you fulfillment and what you actually care about in life. And that's hard. It's hard to know yourself. I mean, this is something that philosophers have been discussing for (laughs) centuries, you know, millennia know yourself. Right. But that's the, that's the first thing, like only spend a lot on areas you care about. So for example, the the thing I splurge on, it's not clothing, it's not cars. I don't even own a car. Right. I'm 32 years old, never owned a car. Right. But the thing I spend a lot of money on is I like going out to restaurants. I'm like a little bit of a foodie. So I'm willing to spend more on those in those areas. And I live in in New York City. So that's kind of something that helps out for that. But I'm willing to spend more in those areas. But then I cut back in a lot of other areas. So figure out like what brings you fulfillment. That's the first one. The second thing I do is if I'm ever splurging on something like not in one of those areas, what I do is I use something called the 2x rule, which is basically like if I'm going to spend $300, let's say on a nice pair of dress shoes, I want these things to last me like 10 years or something, right? I'll take another, I'll save another 300, so 600 in total, so 2x of the original purchase. And I'll take that other 300 and either invest it in the stock market oh. or something, invest in income producing assets or donate it. There's a lot of ways you can do this. Whatever, like, oh, if I'm spending on myself, I want to also invest in a good cause. You can do that. So there's a lot of mental tricks you can use to like get over that spending guilt. And I find in my personal experience, it works. I never, I'm like, oh my God, I can't believe I spent that 300 bucks or that 500 bucks on myself. I, I could never do something like that. 
Well, when you spend the other 500 on someone else, then it, it kind of gets rid of that guilt. It makes you feel a lot better. So well, I, I think it works and I've, I've heard good responses so far. But I also think Nick building it to two X, you know, if you do mm-hmm. that weeks, months, whatever it is, building it to two X also make sure that you want that thing before you spend mm-hmm. it. Right. I mean, exactly. th- I think there's a great trick there. All right, let's go over to investing for a second. Cause I want to help people get in, excited about investing. You've got three reasons why people should invest. And I know there's a bunch of people listening to this show that are, you know, they're sitting there like you are with a thousand dollars invested and a spreadsheet mm-hmm. about everything they need to know. And they just need to mm-hmm. jump in the pool because the water's warm and it's a lot more fun when you have money in there. But number two is, or number two, what the hell am I talking about? Uh, these three, the first one you say is saving for your future self. What does that mean? What's that all about? So there's some, there's some data that shows that, you know, they ask people like, oh, why are you saving? And they ask them, you know, they ask all these questions, like what's your saving motivation? And the one motivation that actually seems most likely to make people save more or consistently save more is saving for their future self. It's not saving for their children somehow. It's not saving for vacations. It's saving for your future self. So when it comes to like saving and investing, be selfish. You have to kind of, they actually did this study where they had people like look at like pictures of themselves, but like they aged them a bit. And they said, and once they could realize that they were going to become an old person, very likely, they started thinking about saving more, right? So it's one of those things like you, that old person, you will become an old person one day. It's a, it's a fact. It's very likely that most people will become old people one day, right? So because of that, think about saving for your future self. That's the first one. I've had times in my life where I struggled to save. And I always think back to this, man, if I think it sucks to save for my future self now, imagine I'm 65 and I didn't. Like then I project myself into the future where I have no money and I'm kind of your grandpa. You know, I mean, not addicted to mm-hmm. stuff, but I have no money and, mm-hmm. I, and I'm living with my mom. And I think, you know, I do a podcast in my mom's house, but I don't want to, <laughs> I don't, don't want to have to live here too. And that always gets me motivated every single time. I don't know if it's the fear of that or what it is, but number it two, works. number two is preserving your wealth against inflation. I think this is a big one that nobody thinks about. Yeah, I think so. Like right now, especially, it's very relevant with inflation, you know, whatever, 8% over the last year. And and depends, inflation's all over the place. Some categories are up a lot, some aren't up as much. So inflation is just like, it's like the social contract that, I mean, that society has basically said, like, if you put your money under a mattress, you're going to lose money. That, that money's going to lose its value over time. And I think it's, as I said, just a social contract that we've all just agreed to that, like, okay, to, in order for you to like preserve wealth, you need to invest it and allow it to be productive in other capacities. So that's another reason to invest because your dollar every single day is losing value very slightly. For most of history, there's times where obviously there's deflation, but for most of history, that's true. Well, so. that inflation argument this year also is another reason to work on your income streams, right? Because mm-hmm. if you're not earning 7.5% more, you're, you're falling behind, which yep. is scary. Third, and this is a big aha from, I'm not a, I'm not a huge fan of Mr. Rich Dad, Poor Dad, but I like some of the Mm -hmm. messages in the book. And one is this one, replacing human capital with financial capital. This gets me excited, Nick. Me not Mm -hmm. going to work anymore, my, my money going to work makes me excited. Exactly. And I think the, the thing you have to, people don't realize is like, I think that the most, the best examples of this is like athletes, like athletes that are, you know, getting paid a lot of money, but their careers are maybe six to eight years. So they have a ton of human capital, but that thing is going to drop off like a cliff for most of them after that eight years. So think about like, imagine like you have all this 
human capital, which say it's worth however many millions of dollars, right? And you have, you're gonna get a 40 year career span in the, in the course of, you know, eight years. And maybe it's still gonna be more than most people's 40 year career spans, but still they don't realize that. So when it drops off, they're like, oh my gosh, like, what do I do now? So the thing is just think about like your skills are, I mean, yes, your skills can go up over time, but your time is always going down. So you're, you're never gonna have more time than you had, you know, yesterday, right? So because of that, you need to kind of convert that labor income to, financial income through assets and things. And this gets back to the save invest continuum, right? When you're early on, all you have is your labor income, right? You have very little assets. And slowly over time, you're going to convert that into income producing assets by investing. And then ideally that raises your income as well. So we talked about the five ways to raise income. The sixth way, which is really my favorite is like invest, like get income producing assets (laughs) and have those things pay you. That's the real way to raise your income. Yeah, that is truly the way, which is why you, Mm -hmm. you just keep buying I got one more question for you before we say goodbye. You have Mm -hmm. a well-earned reputation of telling people not to buy individual stocks. And I have always thought, okay, that's because Nick doesn't like individual stocks. But you dive into in the book about probably a bigger thing and something that I worry about every single time I buy individual stocks. But if you can explain to everybody the real cost of buying individual stocks. Yes, yes. There's two arguments, man. I'll just go over the first one quickly. And the first one, which probably most of your listeners heard, like, don't buy individual stocks because you're going to underperform the market, right? There's a lot of data there. Like most active managers, stock pickers don't beat the market after like three to five years after fees, like 75 or 80% can't beat the benchmark, right? That's a great argument, but I don't want to make that one. You've heard that one already. The argument I make is what I call the existential argument, which is basically like, you don't know if you're a good stock picker. Like, and I mean that, I don't mean that as a, a disrespect. It's just hard to know. Like the, the analogy I give is like, if me and LeBron James went out on the basketball court and you didn't know who LeBron James was, it's very obvious within five minutes that he has skill and I don't, right? <laughs> it would be obvious. And that's true. Most people, you can tell who has skill and who doesn't, right? To some degree, if there's two people who are close, maybe you wouldn't tell, but a basketball coach would know. The point is in most endeavors in life, you can tell when you have skill, with investing, it's very difficult and it can take a very long time. It may take you five, 10 years before you realize you have skill. You get lucky early on, you get unlucky early on, right? There's all sorts of stuff. And there was a paper where they found that like 10% of people had identifiable skill. So if you assume 10% of identifiable skill, let's assume the bottom 10% have of identifiable lack of skill, right? So we got the top 10% and the bottom 10% we can identify. That means the middle 80%, four out of five people, we have no idea if they're good. And that's the thing that's going to probably eat you alive. You're out there picking stocks and you're like, wait, am I even any good at this? Like, should I be spending all this time and energy on this when I can just be like the 80th percentile just buying an index fund? That's my take there. Now, of course, if you want to do this for like 5% of your money, some small amount, I don't care. Have fun. I even, I own two individual stocks. I'm not going to tell you what they are. They're down bad right now. They're tech stocks, but they're very small. It was like 1% of my net worth. It's not, I did sit it for fun with some friends. That's fine. I just don't think people should have like 80, 90, a bulk of their wealth in individual stocks because of this exact principle, because you're, you're not going to know if you're good, basically. Well, th- th- there is a human toll. I mean, there's a, I was mm-hmm. looking at my individual stocks this morning. I own a, th- th- I'll tell you what company it was. It's Lemonade. This thing just continually has gone down and down and down the whole mm-hmm. time I've owned it. And there is mm-hmm. a, there's a stress. I have almost no money in it, Nick. I mean, I don't even think <laughs> I, I, I don't, I don't know that I have four figures in this stock. I think I have three figures <laughs> worth of money in this stock. So there's absolutely none of my money's in it. I worry a hell of a lot more about that because it's a name that I'm emotionally invested to versus 99.9% of my portfolio, which is in funds that I don't mm-hmm. worry about because it's the market. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's funny because you start to identify with your stock picks because I think the issue is like you made a choice different from the default, which is path. Like no one looks at like, oh, you bought the S&P 500. You're an idiot. Like no one's going to say that to you. That's like the default choice, like for stocks, at least your stock allocation, not bonds, but your stock allocation. Right. 
So when you start to deviate from that, now you're like, oh, I made this choice. It's my fault if I lose right. money versus I might. So that's the issue. You start getting your head identifying with your investments. And you're right, you're going to spend you know 90% of your financial time looking at lemonade versus your other, which like your other portfolio is probably moving up and down, you know, <laughs> you know, magnitudes larger in terms of movements on a day-to-day basis. Yet you're like, oh, who cares about that? Right. So yeah, right. It's, lose, it's a very funny, but a lot of people I've experienced it myself as well. So. I lose or make 10 bucks on this thing. And and it's <laughs> that, that's where all my hair went, I think. That is damn lemonade. Uh, the, book, the book is called Just Keep Buying Proven Ways to Save Money and Build Your Wealth. Nick, great job, my friend. And it's available everywhere, I assume. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, Joe. Appreciate that. Hey, this is Lou Mangello from WDW Radio. And when I'm not at Walt Disney World or sharing my passion for Disney World or eating, I am stacking Benjamins. Big thanks to Nick for hanging out with us, OG. And What powerful stuff. I mean, I love this message that early on, forget about having the perfect portfolio, put more in, put more money in. The fact that people deal with all of this extra crap when you're in your 20s and your 30s and your early 40s. I mean, don't get me wrong, knowing how to invest is important, but it's going to be far more important in your 40s and 50s than it is in your 20s. In your 20, let's just shovel money pile, in. Pile it in. Yep. Yeah. So you have good. to get the what a great message. You have to get the value of the compounding, and the only way to get it is to get money dumped in as quickly as possible. I don't know how many different ways we can say, uh, okay plan today is better than a perfect plan next week. Yeah. Yeah, it's so so great. Just just go, move, move. And and how powerful is that? Cuz so many people I think listen to shows like ours because they feel kind of paralyzed and they feel like if I just had a little more data. Yeah. And Nick who's the data guy is saying you don't need more data. You just need to go. Just, just need to go. Do it. Yes. So love that Nick's the perfect messenger for that message. Um, and what a great guy. Hey, let's throw out the Haven Lifeline and tackle some of life's most important questions. Our friends at Haven Life Insurance Agency, Douglas, they put what you value first. 18-year-old scotch in one of those really nice heavy rocks glasses with just one cube in it. Like, like, thumbs up. Is that what they, that's. Is that the thing where. Fine, in, one of these times you're going to be like, yep, Doug, you got it. Okay. And next on the show. Probably don't uh, have the scotch before you fill out their their application online. However, the application is simple, so you might be able to get away with it. And it is online, and you'll get instant coverage decision. And like, we lost like, a sponsor. How responsible is it drinking when you're working on your life insurance while you're drinking scotch? I have done far less responsible things while I've been imbibing than doing the right thing and taking I care of my family. I guarantee you there's some study, a Google search away to say, you know, two scotches a day makes you live longer. Because <laughs> every other day there's a new study that contradicts something that we read the week before. So I, there's got to be one out there. Their prices are affordable too. All policies issued by the parent company, Mass Mutual, more than 160 years old. Stackingbenjamins.com slash Haven Life. Go get that done now, peeps. Uh, today we're going to throw out the lifeline to our new friend, Chris, say hi, Chris. Hi, Joe and OG. This is Chris from the booming metropolis of Dayton, Oregon. I'm 51, married with a cat and a dog, and I've been listening to your show for 10 years now, and I'm still waiting, still waiting to learn something. So in addition to Stacking Benjamins, my wife will tell you that I listen to a lot of other personal finance podcasts 
And there's a frequent topic that just drives me nuts. It's this idea of separate accounts for couples and the equal or proportional sharing of expenses. <laughs> and the couples who call or write in always seem to have an issue that I think could be solved if they just thought of their individual resources as one big resource. My wife and I have always had just one joint account. So my question for the two of you is, are we the odd ones? While I wait to hear your answer, I will be thinking of all the places I can take selfies with my new t-shirt. Thanks guys. <laughs> so we want those selfies, Chris, on the internet. And by the way, the booming metropolis of Dayton thought I had him. And then he throws in the switcheroo with Oregon. I was like, wow. All right. That's good. And by the way, before OG, before you, you tackle this one, I just got to say, Chris, this is a rant that Doug had like eight years ago. I remember early on in the show, he's like, if I hear one more discussion about separate accounts versus one account, I'm going to go choke somebody. I just do not. <laughs> this is your least favorite personal finance discussion, Doug. It is. It's just stupid. I don't, you just go, OG. I, Chris I, thinks I don't it's have the stupid. energy. Chris thinks it's stupid. I know. I feel you, Chris. Yeah, I think it's a function of a lot of moving parts, right? I think you guys got married both when you were younger, like I was, and... 11. I was 11. We didn't, you know, I didn't have any money. All the money I got, all the money I had in the universe came from our wedding. You know what I mean? Like like, like the, the checks that came, you know, from... You were thinking I should get married more often, weren't you? <laughs> I was like, this is pretty lucrative. We can pull this off every every month, you know. OG, <laughs> hashtag side hustle. <laughs> but um, uh, we got to go to OG's fourth wedding. We didn't. Sorry, uh, yeah, we didn't have any money, so you know there wasn't anything to split up. It was whatever. And um, over the years, we've had different times where she's made more money or I've made more money. And I know that's not the same for everybody. Sometimes you know one spouse makes more the entire time. But it was never really a thing for us. We also don't have an issue with the other person spending money and having, you know, any sort of trust or relationship issues around if I want to spend money, I spend it. If she wants to spend money, she spends it. And that's that. We talk about it. We we have conversations about it. And I think that's probably one of the bigger issues is that there's the the reason that you're trying to have the 40 million different accounts is because you don't want to have the discussion about what you should spend or not spend on money. And so the easiest way to not have that is to just, you know, split the money up and and then you don't have to deal with that problem. There's also circumstances, I think, if you get married later in life, you've accumulated money on your own where you can kind of make a case for separate accounts. But even then, I still think that it's kind of weird, and, and this is my opinion, to think about it from the context of like, this is your stuff and this is my stuff. Like we're, we're kind of a team, you know, (laughs) if I fail at this, this impacts you as much as it impacts me probably. Right. I mean, I've heard this from clients. I've heard saying, you know, well, my husband doesn't want to deal with this. So he's on his own. It's like, well, who do you think is going to pay the mortgage if he doesn't (laughs) like, this isn't, you're not, it's not on your own. You're doing this together. So I do think that there's some person who finds usually more interest in it and has more excitement around money or planning or whatever in a relationship, I don't think that you can abdicate it and just say like, oh, well, I don't want to deal with it. 
But yeah, I'm on I'm on team Chris, I'm on team Doug. I mean, we have different we have multiple accounts, but but they're not like this is my money, I'm not going to tell you about it. It's stuff. It's we have different savings yeah. accounts for different purposes, but you know, we have one one credit card that we both use and it just all goes onto one thing. So All right. Yeah, Joe, the, before you the, jump in, Joe, I just need to you had damn well better make us a, a little soundbite out of I'm on team Doug. <laughs> that that needs to get used a lot on this show henceforth. I want to hear that. I'm gonna make it. I'm gonna make it my ringtone for OG. It's gonna be my. It's oh my god. I'm floating on air right now. It was a long time coming. Yeah. Uh, I love the idea of it's all about conversations because I think that that nails it. You have to talk about your money and be open about your money. You know, I have advocated for a long time a weekly meeting that's short, that's fun. And just have this continual discussion, uh, one one plan meeting a week, and then you'll have these organic conversations the rest of the time. And Cheryl and I, like you, OG, we have multiple accounts. And I'll tell you why we do, Chris. It's that the way that Cheryl and I have always done accounting drives us each bonkers. And the better way to not have a fight of how we account for, like how we're, we're busy people. And when we account for purchases, it's just, if I have my account, she has her account. And then we just, we just talk and we split it up and we think of it as, is exactly what you're talking about. It's one big pile of money. But when we tried sharing a single account, we drove each other crazy. It's like, okay, what did you spend money? I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I seriously don't know. I did 47 things today. Sounds, no sounds like me trying to audit the uh, corporate card. Yeah. <laughs> Texting, yeah, texting Joe like forty seven dollars and nineteen cents on February nineteenth. You're like, dude, seriously? I'm like, I don't know. That's yeah. all it says. Forty seven like, nineteen April have... April or you know February nineteenth. What'd you do? You're like office like I expense. No, I have I have I have I have no idea. I figure it out later, but it definitely is uh, is is difficult. So we had separate accounts for that reason and that reason alone. But it still is much more about much more about communication than it is about um, anything else. And actually our friend Farnoosh Tarabi talks about the same exact thing that they have separate accounts. Do not the, the one account thing does not work for them, but they have each other's passwords. They have, they know there's no money hiding. I think, I think money hiding is the big thing, not how you account, right? How many accounts you have is irrelevant. Hiding money, not irrelevant, big, big problem there. So thanks for the question, Chris. If you've got a question and you want to go take selfies of yourself in some kick-ass Stacking Benjamin swag that we send to everybody, we've got this wonderful Greatest Money Show on Earth t-shirt because the Stacking Benjamin Circus coming wherever you are. StackingBenjamins.com slash voicemail. You keep pushing that one shirt, Joe. Well, that's, that's the Haven Life. The Haven Life shirt is the one that you get. Uh, when you call in, that's the one. If you want some of the other swag, which is fantastic, it's stackingbenjamins.com slash shirts. And we have lots of different shirts that you can get. Got it. The so only the place- code they get is going to get them that specific shirt. Gets them the Haven Life shirt. Yes. Perfect. Absolutely. Well, that makes a lot of sense, actually. Yeah. It's Smart. good that Doug's been on the show for a long time and never knew oh, that. that oh, or a- here's what else keep- that says, Joe. <laughs> You've never given me the code to get the shirt. That's what the I real haven't- takeaway from this is. You seriously don't have one of those? Not that specific shirt? No, because you say that I don't get that until I get to my next pay raise, which never happens. I think we can go, I think we can go ahead and do that, OG. Let's, uh, let's, let's expense Doug a shirt. That's and by a, the way, just before we leave, 
congratulations on your 10 year anniversary with the firm, Doug. Here's your t shirt. Yep. That's what I got. <laughs> By the way, it was funny. We were talking to some guy recently on a break at home, and he was talking about being with this firm. And when he reached his uh, five-year anniversary, he got this beautiful, beautiful gold pin, like this this clearly expensive gold pin. At 10 years, he got a great watch. He gets this expensive watch. Then the cost cutting started the last, the last 10 years. At the 15-year mark, he got a certificate. At the 20-year mark, he got a link to a certificate that he can print out himself. That's awesome. <laughs> He's like, how do I go from a watch to a print at home certificate? Congratulations. Print this for yourself. That's a company don't that use, cares. Don't about. use company ink. Do it at home. Yes. <laughs> right. Preferably at home. I'm like, wow, whoever made that decision. Uh, you know what we should do? We, we, we totally need to cut back on these, on these perks for people that have uh, trusted their lives with us really work for us for a long time. All right. Where the heck are we in the show? Are we done? Is, 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 is that where we are? Did we answer the question? Stackybenjamins.com slash voicemail is how to get there. Hey, uh, we are on the road. Just a couple more things to wrap this up. If you are in Indianapolis, we're going to be there tomorrow. Emily Guy Birkin and I, my co-author of Stacked, on Wednesday, we will be in Columbus, Ohio, enemy territory, OG. I'll be in enemy territory at Easton, uh, a fine shopping center, and the beautiful, big Barnes & Noble there at uh, 7 p.m. Uh, Make sure you Indiana- take a shower before you leave Ohio. <laughs> Indianapolis, by the way, at 6.30 at Taxman Brewing. And then the Book House in Cleveland, man. If you don't have tickets yet for our event Thursday in Cleveland, the Book House, not a big place. I think uh, uh, the room holds about 35 people. We're already at 32 a week before as I, as I say this. So uh, you want to definitely get your ticket now. And that might be sold out. So apologies if you might have waited a little long. But uh, stackybenjamins.com slash stacked to see where we're coming next. Because then we hit the Michigan events. And then the whole team, hopefully, fingers crossed, going to be in Chicago, our downtown event in Chicago. And then Milwaukee, Madison, Minneapolis coming up after that. Last, though, if your goal isn't just to hang out here, it's really to get something done because it's not about what you know. It's about what you do. Maybe it means upgrading your team, and that means OG and his team taking on new clients. So head to stackybedjamins.com slash OG for his team's calendar, and that's the first step in talking to them about thinking bigger about your goals. All right. I think that's it for today, Doug. What should we have learned on this one? Well, Joe, first, take some advice from Nick Majuli and keep buying. Early on, it's all about adding money to your funds. Later, you can get more analytical about having the perfect diversification. Second, fiduciary rules? Yeah, even if judges are striking them down, you should still work with fiduciary advisors. But the big lesson? We're very exclusive here in the basement. If you want to be friends with us, you got to have a sense of humor. Oh, and Joe's mom says no more basement parties until you slobs clean up all the Cheeto fingerprints off the mini fridge. God. Thanks to Nick Majuli for joining us today. His book, Just Keep Buying, is available anywhere books are sold. 
This show is the property of SB Podcasts, LLC, copyright 2022, and is created by Joe Salcihai. Our producer is Karen Repine. The show is written by the brilliant Paulette Perhatch with help from Joe, me, and Doc G from the Earn and Invest podcast. After you listen to our show, check out the 201 Deep Dives written by our website manager and blog editor, Brooke Miller. You'll find the 411 on all things money at the 201. Just go to stackingbenjamins.com slash 201. Once we bottle up all this goodness, we ship it to our engineer, the amazing Steve Stewart. Steve helps the rest of our team sound nearly as good as I do right now. Want to chat with friends about the show later? Mom's friend Gertrude is our social media coordinator and the room mother in our Facebook group called The Basement. So say hello when you see us posting online. Here's a weird fact. Both she and Tina Eichenberg are never in the same room at the same time. To join all the basement fun with other stackers, type stackingbenjamins.com slash basement. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and we'll see you next time back here at the Stacking Benjamin Show. Not only should you not take advice from these dorks, don't take advice from people you don't know. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any financial decisions, speak with a real financial advisor. Welcome to the after show. This is the part of the show, if you're new here, that doesn't exist. The rule is you don't talk about the after show. And I know people have in the past. So we just ask that if you're going to violate the rule, which is there for a reason, peeps, but if you're going to violate it, just call it dessert. All right. But a couple things. I just got an email that uh, stacked is an Axiom business book gold medalist in the personal finance, retirement planning, investing category. So uh, thanks to Axiom for handing our book an award. I know we also were featured in Forbes as number one on a list of top personal finance books to read. Numero uno. Yeah, which is super to see. So thank you to both Forbes and to Axiom. But today, Doug, I, I don't. Have you told OG the story? Because the Fintern was relaying a story that uh, to you about a recent trip he had from, I think, going skiing. He was on his way home from skiing. Is yeah. that right? In fact, he was probably not far from where our caller, Chris, says he was from. Though I looked, I went to Google Maps and looked for Dayton, Oregon, and it, it just came back, you've been lied to. There is no place <laughs> called Dayton, Oregon. Which would be so fabulous. 
That would be so amazing. <laughs> so, Chris, you, you had a great question. You really wanted that T-shirt, but don't come up with fictional locations. So uh, <laughs> the Fintern was near this mythical Dayton, Oregon. He was at Mount Bachelor skiing, had a great week, and he's on his way home, and he's in a little tiny airport. I want to say it was Redmond, Oregon, was maybe where he flew into. And he gets there, and he was a little stressed for the trip home, only because by the time he would make it all the way back to O'Hare in Chicago. The last shuttle from O'Hare to back to his university was like an hour earlier. So he was going to miss the last shuttle. He was going to have to find a way to, um, you know, spend a night in the Chicago area uh, and then get a shuttle took, in, in the morning. But he also took, my understanding is, tell me if I'm wrong here, but I thought he was on that flight to save money though, right? And then he realized later that this was actually going to cost him money because he's going to have to uh, spend the night someplace. Well, like no, that was a lesson. You're right. Actually, that way. came up in a, in a that, this trip has been talked about a few times on the show, hasn't it? So yeah, before he had booked his ticket, there was a point which he was going to save like 75 bucks, but have like a nine hour layover someplace. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and we, uh, we strongly encouraged him to not save that 75 bucks. No, this, this flight that he got back was at the time, uh, I don't think it was a money saving effort. Okay. It was just, I think what was available for, for whatever yeah. reason. So he was going to have some challenges on the back end, And so, you know, he'd worked it out, but it wasn't going to be ideal. So he gets to the airport and not long after he got there, they make the announcement, Hey, this is a very full flight. We're going to offer uh, anybody who's willing to take a different flight, a $600 credit. So he sprints up there because he knows he's got some flexibility this is a Friday. He doesn't have to be back at school until Monday. So um, he sprints up there, grabs that strike price at 600 bucks. He's in. And he texts me about it. Like, yeah, sweet. Good. It's great when those things line up like that and that happens for you. He texts me like 10 minutes later. They're up to $700. A couple minutes later, they're at $800. And I text and he doesn't him back. know, by the way, if he doesn't know if he gets the 800 or if he's locked in at 600 Correct. He has, he doesn't know. And I didn't know either. Cause I haven't had this opportunity. I can't remember how it all works. So I said, go up and ask, confirm that you're, you know, where you are on the list and confirm, do you get wherever they land at whatever price they land on or what you agreed to at the beginning? And he came back and said, I'm number one on the list and I get whatever number they land on, whatever dollar figure they land on. They landed on a thousand bucks. He was number, number one on the list and he gets a thousand bucks. So he is just loving it. Then they rebook him. Like, by the way, that seems like an airline credit thing, you know, where they give you a thousand dollars worth of credit with a bunch of blackout dates. Right. Yeah. And only for full price fares and all of that. I know. So I was a little skeptical, but Hey, it's still great. You know, he's going to get something a lot. So then they rebook him on another flight and it actually ends up getting him into O'Hare two hours earlier. And he's relaying this to a young woman who was on the trip with him. And she said, oh, that's great. I'll give you a ride back to school. You're going to be getting in when I get in. So I'll give you. So now he doesn't have to spend the night in O'Hare. He doesn't have to pay for the shuttle to get back to school. He's got a free ride down maybe a, there. Maybe like a $150 hotel room that he avoids. Yeah. And. And the shuttle ride was, I think, about that, somewhere in that neighborhood, 100, 150 bucks. So now it's just, it's just cha-ching, it's racking up. So then they let him know that they're going to just, he had already checked his skis in and they tell him, oh, we'll, 
we'll send your skis wherever you want us to send your skis. We'll get them right to you at your dormitory. And he goes, well, wait a minute. Can I actually just have them shipped home to my, oh yeah, we'll ship, we'll ship them home to your parents' house. No problem. So now he doesn't, he, want. He, he doesn't have to deal with his skis anymore. He's flying loose and unencumbered. Got a thousand bucks in his pocket. Cause it's the spring. He's not going to use them again this year. No, absolutely not. And then somewhere in there he learns that they've upgraded him to first class from <laughs> redmond to salt lake city and then to business class from salt lake city to chicago <laughs> this is this is unbelievable and uh yeah he just had the greatest experience getting home that's we're that's gonna hand the story you a thousand, we're gonna hand oh. you a thousand dollars you're going to get in quicker. Here's the deal. We're going to give you a thousand bucks. We're going to get you home quicker. We're going to get you a free ride to the university. We're going to send your skis to your house instead of to the, instead of uh, you carting them around everywhere. Um, and the kicker, I think of this is that thousand dollars was not some full fare credit. Right. Yeah, no, that's a great point. I was just about to, I remember to add that in. So it turns out now, at least with, I think it was Delta he was on you can apply that credit to any number of like 40 or 50 different gift cards to like Chili's Sizzler or to, yeah, the Sizzler or to Amazon or to airfare. But I mean, you had so <laughs> many choices. You could split your amount and you, then you can decide I want 75 bucks going here and 200 bucks going there. It's really, actually, that's a really good customer experience. I would, I would be the guy that's like, all right, let me get, uh, let me get, let me get five bucks at Chili's. Uh, I'm gonna get uh, 22, 2270, 2275 Applebee's. Now I make it 2375. You're uh, looking at the menus at the, each individual restaurant, <laughs> exactly. You guys have a Sears? Can I get some at Sears? Uh, $419.22. You guys keep a track of this, right? $419.22 at Sears. I'll take uh, can you see uh, him with the gate agent like spending? Spending like an hour with the gate agent going over. No, no, no. I need to get the, uh, yeah, sir, we've, revo we've revoked everything. You'll be getting on this flight after all. Row 32, seat F, <laughs> right <laughs> next to the crapper. <laughs> well, stackers, the show might be over, but the celebrations are just beginning because it is Military Appreciation Month that I want to celebrate people like my brother-in-law, Eric, who is such a giving person, Eric will do just anything for you. And as a Marine, you can see that his time in the military taught him to be a guy who gives to his community, gives to his family, and is always there when you need them. This Military Appreciation Month, Navy Federal Credit Union wants to celebrate members like Eric who go above and beyond. Navy Federal offers member-only exclusive rates, discounts, and tools to empower their members and help them reach their goals. Navy Federal's employees are part of the community they serve. Many of them are military family members, reservists, or veterans. And all branches of the military, veterans, DOD employees, and their families are eligible for Navy Federal membership. In fact, there are so many resources on the Navy Federal website. Resources like Best Cities After Service to help veterans transition to civilian life. And Best Careers for Military Spouses to support military families. Visit NavyFederal.org slash celebrate and you'll see all of their Military Appreciation Month offers and other Navy Federal offers. Navy Federal is insured by NCUA, Equal Housing Lender.